the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with Clark Tanner. He was the pastor at Beaverton Christian Church a few years ago. He's now the regional executive director of the Northwest region of Pastor Serve. We'll find out what he's been doing and what he's doing now when he joins me live in studio later this hour. And then in the five o'clock hour, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Larry Gadbaugh. He is the chief executive officer of First Image. Their gala is coming up this Saturday. We'll tell you more about that. And uh, just outline some of the challenges they face by just simply existing and, quite frankly, uh, being very effective in the work that God has called them to. Larry Gadbaugh will join me later in the five o'clock hour. But first, to look at some of the news. Arizona Republican Senator Jeff Flake, facing a tough primary fight, announced today that he will not seek reelection next year while taking a parting shot on the Senate floor at President Trump for behavior he called reckless, outrageous and undignified without mentioning the president by name. I mean, everybody knew who the elephant in the room was. He accused the Republican Party of having given in or given up on the core principles in favor of a more viscerally satisfying anger and resentment. But anger and resentment are not a governing philosophy, end quote. Well, Flake has had a tumultuous relationship with Donald Trump and the administration. In August, he criticized the president's immigration policy in a New York Times opinion piece. The president tweeted in response that Flake was weak on borders, crime and non-factor in the Senate. Flake is 54. He was elected to the Senate in 2012 after 12 years in the House. But polls showed him trailing primary challenger Kelly Ward, a former state senator who's backed by the former White House chief of staff, Steve Bannon. Well, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said today that based on Flake's previous statements and the lack of support he has in Arizona, his decision not to seek re-ele- uh, re-election rather, is probably a good move. Sanders said that at a lot of um, Rather, a lot of language in Flake's speech was not befitting on the Senate floor. So she was accusing him of speaking inappropriately as he accused her boss of doing the same. Ward treated after Flake's announcement, Arizona voters are the big winner in at Flake's decision, uh, at Jeff Flake's decision to not seek re-election. They deserve a strong conservative in the Senate who supports the president of the United States and the America First agenda. Well, Flake suggested uh, primary voters were turning away from traditional conservatives. It is clear, he said, at this moment that a traditional conservative who believes in limited government and free markets, who is devoted to free trade, who is pro-immigration, has a narrow and a narrow uh, uh, path uh, to nomination in the Republican Party, a narrow and narrowing, I think he meant to say, his voice occasionally trembling with emotion. The notion that one should stay silent as the norms and values that keep America strong are undermined, Flake added, and as the alliances and agreements that ensure the stabi- stability rather of the entire world are routinely threatened by a level of thought that goes into 140 characters, 
uh, is uh, ahistoric and I believe profoundly misguided. Well, Flake's speech was greeted with applause in the Senate chamber. His fellow Arizona Senator John McCain tweeted thanks to uh, Flake for his honorable service to the state of Arizona and the nation. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer could barely contain himself. He praised Flake in a statement, calling him one of the finest human beings I've met in politics. He is moral, upright, and strong, and he will be missed by just about everyone in the Senate. He went on to say, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell praised Flake as a great team player who is always trying to get a constructive outcome no matter what the issue before us. So I thank the senator from Arizona for his service, which will continue, thankfully, another year and a half, so he's not leaving tomorrow. And for the opportunity to listen to his remarks today, McConnell added. Well, President Trump's eldest son, Donald Jr., tweeted a link to an Arizona Republic story announcing Flake would not run for reelection with the hashtag uh, M-A-G-A. Flake's announcement came, uh, by the way, I have no idea what that meant. They were all in caps. You can figure it out. Uh, Flake's announcement came uh, a month after another prominent Republican senator, Bob Corker of Tennessee, announced that he would not seek reelection next year. Corker and Trump have since engaged in a war of words, with the president calling the senator incompetent and little Bob Corker in a series of tweets Tuesday morning. Corker fired back, calling the president utterly untruthful on Twitter and telling Fox News that Trump's political model is a is to divide. By the way, boys and girls, don't do this at school. It's very immature. The voters of these um, individual senator states were speaking at pretty loud volumes, Sanders said, of the Corker uh, Corker and Flake uh, decisions. I don't think they were likely to be reelected, and I think that shows their state support is more behind the president than those two individuals. Again, that was a quote from uh, Sanders. Besides uh, Ward, other potential candidates for Flake's seat include uh, current state uni- university regent Jay Heiler, former state GOP chairman Robert Graham, state treasurer and 2016 Trump campaign CFO Jeff DeWitt. Other names that have been uh, floated in recent weeks include representatives Paul Gosser and Trent Franks, conservative stalwarts who sit in safe GOP seats. Heiler announced early this month that he was considering a run. He was chief of staff to Arizona Governor uh, Fife Symington or Symington in the 1990s. He's been involved in numerous political campaigns. Former Governor Jan Brewer was uh, pushing Heiler as a candidate. Uh, On Tuesday, she tweeted the 2018 Senate race about to get real interesting. Well, it was a rather, rather interesting, if not in some ways, juvenile day in Washington. Once again, as President Trump's four month uh, ban on refugees came to a close today, he issued an executive order enacting extreme vetting procedures targeting those trying to enter the United States from 11 countries. There will be a general resumption of refugee admissions under the executive order. While that review is ongoing, refugee admissions from the 11 countries will be considered on a case by case basis and poses no threat to the welfare of the United States. A senior administration official announced the tougher vetting includes collecting biographical data as well as employment history from people seeking entry into the United States. Officers will also be trained in how to detect fraud. In January, President Trump signed sweeping orders that significantly tightened the country's refugee and visa policies, suspending almost all refugee admissions from a handful of uh, countries. Uh, for four months and indefinitely barring entry from some Syrian refugees. Since the executive order was signed, the travel ban has been extended to countries in Africa, Asia and South America. The controversial travel ban has been blocked in the courts with challenges from states like Hawaii and Maryland. The Supreme Court ruled uh, the 120-day refugee suspension could go into effect in June. It expired today. The Department of Homeland Security, the State Department, and other U.S. agencies were reviewing the country's screening process during 
during the temporary ban. And even with the ban lifted, refugee admissions are expected to uh, clock in significantly lower than in recent years. Last month, you might recall the president uh, capped refugee admissions at 45,000 for the fiscal year that began October 1st. His predecessor, President Barack Obama, had put it at 110,000 uh, in place a year earlier. The actual number of refugees allowed this year could be much uh, lower than Trump's 45,000 cap, uh, which sets a maximum but not a minimum number. So those are, the refugee ban has ended. New standards have been put in place. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Clark Tanner. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he was a fixture here as a pastor of one of the large churches in Beaverton. He's currently the regional executive director of the Northwest region of PastorServe. We'll tell you what that's all about and what he's all about now. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to Clark Tanner joining me in studio. He was the former pastor of Beaverton Christian Church, currently regional executive director of the Northwest region of Pastor Serve. We'll tell you all about it when he joins me here later this hour. Also, KPDQ is giving nearly 100 tickets to Portland's Singing Christmas Tree. You can visit kpdq.com to enter to win a four-pack of tickets to a special 2 p.m. performance on Saturday, November the 25th at the Keller Auditorium. Portland Singing Christmas Tree celebrates its 55th season with a two-hour musical production showcasing both contemporary and traditional Christmas music performed by over 350 adults and youth choir voices. Dance numbers from the Jefferson Dancers special numbers by local actors and musicians. Well, I get to be a part this year as well. For more information and to enter to win your free tickets, visit kpdq.com. Hope to see you at the Singing Christmas Tree on Saturday, November 25th. Well, after months of battling uh, back uh, accusations of collusion with Moscow in last year's presidential campaign, Republicans say Democrats are the ones who now have some explaining to do as fresh developments raise questions about their own Russian connections. First came uh, reports from the FBI that they knew about a Russian bribery plot tied to nuclear energy interests in the United States well before the Obama administration okayed a mining company sale to a Russian firm, giving it partial control over American uranium reserves. Then came a report by um, that Robert Mueller's Russia investigation is looking at the dealings of Tony Podesta, a powerful Democratic lobbyist and the brother of former Hillary Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta. Meanwhile, Fusion GPS, the firm behind the controversial anti-Trump dossier, has gone to court to block Congress from getting its bank records after its representatives pleaded the fifth in Capitol Hill appearances last week. Hillary Clinton today, or rather Monday, brushed off the revival of the uranium deal controversy as baloney meant to distract from GOP controversies, but Republicans beg to differ. And the back and forth continues, as I expect it will for quite uh, some time. So you've got the probe continuing into possible collusion from the uh, Trump campaign and looking back to some incidents that involve Podesta, Clinton, Obama and others. I, I would just love to hear that in Washington, there are no controversies. They're just doing the people's business. I don't know. It's just kind of a pipe dream of mine. Well, the loss of four special operations soldiers in Niger is a tragedy. We grieve as a nation, rightly, whenever we lose any of the brave young men and women who serve in uniform. And there are many of them in places around the world that you and I may not be aware of. That said, politicians and news media are turning the event into something of a farce, having served 
in the Army for 28 years. Stephen Bucci says he can't let the mischaracterizations, many by leaders who clearly know better, continue without comment. And he points out that the mission in Niger, which began in 2013, was a classic special operations operation. It... um, Uh, The type of operation is called foreign internal defense. That's an old school term for the most fundamental task we give our Green Berets. A small team of them goes into a country, a foreign country, to work with that country's military to better prepare it to deal with its own problems. This is done during the period the military calls phase zero, which is prior to when a bigger conflict emerges. In fact, it's designed to prevent a bigger conflict from emerging. It's done in coordination with a host nation, uh, civilian government, and the entire country team at the U.S. Embassy, which is led by the U.S. ambassador and supported by the intelligence community station chief. Well, this is not a clandestine Hollywood commando mission or a suicide raid. It's overt and it's open. Its purpose is to build rapport with the host nation's military, to improve its capabilities, to gather open source intelligence and to get to know both the lay of the land and the local players. Well, the U.S. has conducted these kinds of missions around the world since the 1950s. At times we've had had as few as a dozen of these operations and at other times several hundred in as many as 80-plus countries simultaneously. These missions are routine. They have short-circuited conflicts on nearly every continent in the world at one time or another. They are also inherently dangerous. The teams are small, ranging from a pair of operators up to a few dozen. There are seldom more than 100 U.S. troops. Some might ask, why do, you, why do we put such small teams at risk? Well, the answer is simply that the return is worth it. Often the use of a small, mature, and low-profile group of quiet professionals can have greater success than a large, high-profile deployment on a massive scale. Particularly today, as terror groups like the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda move to numerous small and underdeveloped countries, these Phase Zero Special Operations missions allow the U.S. to uh, mitigate the threat before it grows, and they do so without making the U.S. the world policeman. Instead of fighting the terrorists everywhere ourselves, these missions help our friends to better police their own backyards. Now, these missions have been extremely common since 9-11, so it's ludicrous that lawmakers now claim ignorance of both their existence and purpose. Were these lawmakers asleep during the last 10 years that they were briefed by the commander of U.S. Special Operations Command and the uh, combatant commander of U.S. Africa, Central, Pacific, and Southern Commands? Nothing about these missions is new, little is hidden, and none of it should surprise anyone who has spent more than a week on Capitol Hill. To repeat, these missions are dangerous. The teams that execute them lack the huge support mechanism America's Americans rather have come to associate with military operations. Our troops know this and regularly volunteer for the opportunity to participate in the missions simply because they know they work. In fact, the point apparently was being made in the call that's become rather controversial uh, by the president. They also know these are the kinds of missions they have trained for and which they execute with great greater skill than anyone in the world. They know that if trouble occurs, support is further away than in conventional operations. Intelligence is superb, often better than in regular military activities, although this may have been an exception in Niger. But the logistics and uh, response functions are thin and distant. That's why we only send professionals on such missions. These are not kids who just joined the military six months ago. They are hardened professionals who, yes, know what the risks are and go without hesitation. 
Yes, we need to know what happened in Niger. Anytime military members die in action, a full investigation occurs. The Department of Defense, rather, does not need Congress or the media to provoke that. The military is always working to make our troops uh, safe as accomplishing the mission will allow. A full postmortem of the deadly ambush in Niger needs to take place so that we can do better on the next mission. That would have happened if no one in Washington had said a word. The media and politicians should stop the showmanship and game playing. Let Defense Secretary James Mattis do his job and let the brave men and women of the U.S. military do theirs. Grandstanding senators and talking heads don't help make America safe, but missions just like the one in Niger do. And we should be focusing our attention on the four Army Green Berets um, who lost their lives in this particular mission and wait for answers as to why. Well, as I've been promising, uh, coming up next, we're going to talk with Clark Tanner. He's been away from the metro area for a number of years. In fact, I thought we would never see him again unless he was visiting his family. He has a son in the area. But he and his uh, beautiful wife, Glennie, have returned to the area. She, uh, I should say, he is now the regional executive director for Pastor Serve for the Northwest Region. I had the occasion to run into uh, Pastor Tanner at the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast a couple of weeks ago and uh, had a brief conversation, then attended another event where he was the keynote speaker. So, I've uh, had a chance to catch up a little bit, but thought you might be uh, interested in learning more about uh, where he's been these last few years. And trust me, he has not been incarcerated. We'll clear that up. Uh, And the work that he's currently doing with Pastor Serve. It's a really um, effective organization that is strengthening the church, beginning with the pastorate and on down through the staff members uh, through a number of means. And I think you'll be excited to hear about it. And in fact, uh, if your pastor is struggling, if your church is struggling, you might want to check into the work that Pastor Serve does. And it's just simply pastor singular serve dot net if you'd like more information. Okay, Clark Tanner will join us. And then later in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with the CEO, the chief executive officer of First Image, which is, of course, the collection of pregnancy resource centers in the Portland metro area. Larry Gadball will join me. We're going to talk about their gala that's coming up this weekend. And by the way, they still have a few seats available We'll tell you more about that and about a campaign that is designed to smear the reputation of pregnancy resource centers right here in Portland and all across the Fruited Plains. So we'll tell you more about that when he joins us in the five o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I am delighted that Clark Tanner is back in town and that he's back in studio. He currently serves as Regional Executive Director of the Northwest Region for Pastor Serve. He is a passionate uh, visionary for the church and church leaders. He led a mega church right here in our community, Beaverton Christian Church, for many years. Um, he loves helping redirect churches that have lost their focus and passion. And because of his heart for pastors, his mission during his uh, years of ministry have been to engage, equip, encourage, and ignite pastors. He currently serves with Pastor Serve, and we're delighted to have you back in the area. Welcome. Hey, thank you, Georgie. It's good to be home. Well, I mentioned that I ran into you at the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast, and that was a very pleasant surprise. And then a, another event a couple of days later. Uh, tell our listeners where you have been and what you've been doing. I started a rumor just moments ago that you uh, may have been incarcerated. So you might want to explain <laughs> where you and Glennie were. Uh, thank you for uh, sharing that <laughs> bit of news with everyone. <clears throat> My mother would be glad to hear that. Um, anyway, uh, we've been gone about eight years. And uh, after we left uh, the Portland area, Beaverton area, 
I was down in California at Adventure uh, Church in Roseville for about a year, and then <clears throat> ended up in the uh, Wichita, Kansas area at Countryside Christian Church, uh, a church uh, that really was lacking leadership at the time. And uh, so as we went and visited with them, talked to them about our giftedness and uh, what they were looking for, it just seemed like a wonderful match, and it was. And so we finished up, uh, did a uh, succession plan, uh, went through all the transition, worked on that for about a year, and uh, picked my successor and literally did the, uh, uh, took the baton and did the handoff uh, to uh, our, my successor. So really pleased with how everything ended mm. out there. Mm. Well, let's talk about um, Pastor Serve. Uh, you, as I mentioned, are serving as a regional executive director, and I assume that's this area. I don't know if it's the Pacific Northwest or just the Northwest. Explain your role and what Pastor Serve is all about. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, uh, Pastor Serve, as far as my responsibilities as the regional director, uh, involves the state of Oregon, uh, Washington, California, and I'm praying about Hawaii especially about February, if I can get over there, that would be very nice. <laughs> Do you need an assistant? Uh, yes, you can, yeah, yeah, exactly. You can go and sing, and we can just <laughs> do go. this great team effort. Um, uh, Pastor Serve uh, started 18 years ago. Uh, the founder is Jimmy Dodd. Uh, Jimmy's a, a Wheaton graduate. <clears throat> and how this all came about is that uh, he just found a lot of pastors I just didn't have anyone to talk to. Mm-hmm. And he's one of those individuals that uh, people kind of migrate to him. And so uh, he was doing some church planting. Uh, after that, uh, he just decided, as, as God just kept bringing people into his life, that it was time to do something different. And uh, several people encouraged him to do this. And so he formed what was Pastor Serve. He was Pastor Serve for a long time. And, uh, and since then, uh, that his office and the, the main office is in Kansas City. Uh, there's an office in um, Atlanta. Uh, there's another office in Colorado Springs. And uh, through my connections and involvement with him, uh, I, I just felt like that uh, taking my uh, years of experience and not just setting them aside, but taking my years of experience would be good for, uh, it'd be, be a natural connection for me with them. And uh, God put all that together. And then we found out I was coming back to the Northwest. He said, man, we've been looking for somebody uh, for the Northwest for a long time. And so will you think about that and pray about it? And uh, Glennie and I did that. And it just seemed like a very natural thing. And God's blessed it. And so we're grateful for that. Well, we're grateful to have you back as well. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the challenge of pastoring in the 21st century. I think many of us have read statistics of the challenge that those who serve in the pulpit face and that many are simply walking away due to lack of support and a number of other reasons. But let's talk about the crisis that many are facing because they are isolated in the midst of a congregation. And that's exactly right. And uh, statistically, uh, we're told that at least 1,500 pastors walk away from the ministry every month. Mm. Um, We know that over 3,000 churches close across the United States every year. And if those statistics aren't aren't correct, at least uh, they're very disturbing uh, for all of us to think about uh, that many churches closing, and we think about pastors walking away. Uh, And and generally, it is. It's an isolation. That's the problem. Uh, People, these pastors, feel like they're just isolated. They don't have anybody to talk to. Uh, If they begin talking to somebody on their church board or someone that is in another capacity over them, uh, they're afraid that they'll be fired. 
And it's that old concept, if people really knew what I was thinking or what's going through my mind or what I'm dealing with, they, they might not like me. And <clears throat> so we know it's a spiritual battle that we're involved in the church. And we are here, I am here, uh, and our motto says that no pastor should walk alone. And uh, that's, a, that's a huge task. Uh, but our whole thing is to uh, encourage um, and really kind of crisis, uh, crisis care. Uh, because we find uh, uh, pastors that are in that area right now that is just they're, they're going through a difficult time, whatever that might be. Uh, maybe it's something from a family uh, issue. Maybe it's uh, something that they uh, had a problem with when they were younger. And then all the pressure comes in, and all of a sudden this stuff just begins to bubble up in their lives. So uh, crisis care is one. And uh, generally as we get involved in that, uh, if there's um, some kind of evaluation that needs to be done, if there's counseling that needs to be done, you know, we can get pastors to the right people. And it's not just a pastor, but the wife and uh, family. Mm-hmm. We can get them away different places uh, where they can get that support. Uh, the other part of it, it has to do uh, with counseling or, or coaching, I should say. Um, and, and many times that takes the form of um, a year-long coaching uh, event or uh, maybe even less than that. But again, on a on a weekly basis, to be able just to sit down with them, or at least be on the phone with them, and to walk them through situations, setting goals, setting objectives, just talking through maybe some meetings that they're involved in, and then the other arm has to do with working with churches that are just stuck. And again, we know a lot of churches out here that that are stuck, mm-hmm. and uh, they just don't know where to turn. And so we can come in, help them to evaluate, help them to look at their situation and uh, hopefully help them with some uh, goals and, and objectives uh, for the future and to be able to uh, get them healthy again if they're not at that time. Do you think this kind of um, resource is more necessary now because fewer churches are affiliated with a, a, a denomination, that they're, they're more independent than before, so there isn't a network of churches that come alongside the individuals who are leading uh, to provide that kind of support? Yeah, I think so. And and we know that uh, there's a lot of um, uh, church planning organizations yes. today that are very independent. And so uh, you put a person out uh, in a community and, uh, you know, many times they're just kind of expected to be able to do everything. And uh, um, some of the younger ones especially are coming out. Uh, they may not be equipped to be able to do all of that. And so what we like to do is to be able to come along beside them and say, well, you know, you, you don't have to be Superman here. Um, you know, just just find out your gifting and uh, let's set some real objectives for you, uh, realistic uh, objectives. Yeah. And we also want you to spend time with your family. Do not ignore your family. And, uh, Georgie, if, I was, if I'm really honest, which I want to be today, uh, there are times that I probably did uh, neglect my family. But I want to be able to say to these guys today, don't do that. Um, you know, that's that's one key area of your life, and do not neglect your family. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, the pastor is not called to be Superman, but I, I wonder if sometimes we as congregants sort of impose that requirement on an individual. We suggest that because you are in a position of leadership, despite what the scriptures tell us about leaders throughout the Bible <laughs> and their, their frailty and their need, just like ours, to really trust God in those areas of weakness— do we put that kind of pressure oftentimes on the leaders in the church that they are sort of Jesus with a small J and our expectation is is unrealistic and unbiblical? Yeah. And it's amazing to me uh, the number of things, and there have been some studies that have done, and that list is really long when you look at the expectations of the people 
uh, in the congregation. And there's just no way uh, that a, a pastor can, can take care of his family, uh, take care of himself uh, spiritually, because soul care is a huge part of this. And many times uh, there's uh, what we see out in the community, it's what we see up front, uh, but there's a backstage that is, just isn't healthy. And we want to help uh, develop that and, and, uh, and encourage that soul care is really what we're after. We're going to continue our conversation again. We're talking with Clark Tanner. He's the Regional Executive Director of Pastor Serve in our community in the states of Oregon, Washington, California, and possibly Hawaii. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You know, it's on days like this that you really think... I got the best job in the world. Clark Tanner is with me in studio this afternoon. He's back in the area. He pastored uh, for a season in Kansas. Yes. Kansas. And is back now as regional executive director for this region at Pastor Serve. And we're talking about the work they do in supporting um, pastors and churches all across the country. And he's, of course, focused on our region. Um, when you connect with a pastor, what might they expect with that? I mean, obviously it's tailored for each situation, but what might an individual or couple expect when they say, look, I'm isolated here, I'm struggling, uh, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm able to continue? Yeah. What we do is, uh, <clears throat> is, is just really sit down and get acquainted and to kind of find out, uh, you know, their needs, uh, you know, what's, uh, what's the pressing need, uh, what's uh, the pressure uh, that they feel like they're under at that time, and uh, and then we have <clears throat> I have a form. I just I just actually ask them to fill out and just kind of gives me an evaluation or gives a, an evaluation of them uh, about uh, so you know uh, on a scale of one to ten you know how, <laughs> how's life going for you and and of course this just begins to open up a lot of different discussions and um, it's just again sitting down with them and really finding out. Uh, and sometimes it's really interesting because uh, uh, the things that come to the surface, they really haven't talked about. And the wife may be feeling one way, the husband may be feeling the other another way. And uh, so it's uh, it's just when you have that third party, you can kind of begin to ask questions, you know. Yeah. So how's life? How's family? Uh, you know, what, what's a delight in your, in your life right now? Uh, what's a drain uh, in your life? Um, what's confusing? Uh, and, and so just going through some thoughts like that with them, and everything begins to bubble up at that time. Now, part of the reasons that pastors don't have anyone to talk to, I mean, they're surrounded by people, and yet there's not that uh, sense of freedom to, to really express everything that might be uh, troubling is um, uh, the fact that they don't necessarily want everything that's happening to be widely known. What might a, a pastor expect if they make that connection through Pastor Serve? In terms of that struggle, now I imagine it could range anywhere from I'm just not sure what direction to take the church to I'm struggling and there's moral failure. What what happens in in these cases? Yeah. And I think that uh, what we, what needs to be said right up front is confidentiality. Uh, this is one of the one of the great things uh, as far as with our team with myself is that we are a safe place to be able to uh, talk and have these conversations uh, with these pastors. So that number one that's number one right up front. And then, if there, is, if there are some situations uh, that uh, that that need that attention, then we can go and we can get them to a, to a counselor uh, to be able to work through uh, some deeper issues that that have that they're uh, having in their life. 
But if it's a situation uh, kind of church life and with a, maybe it's with the church board, whatever structure that they may have, uh, that after we spend some time together, you know, it's, it's just great to be able to have a third party again, being able to sit down with them and say, you know, hey, this is where your pastor is right now. And, uh, and how do you feel about that situation? And just begin to be able to talk things through. Uh, you know, I always say communicate, 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 communicate. And, uh, and many times that communication isn't there. And, and sometimes they can be that those situations can be resolved very easily. Uh, other times it, it takes a while. Yeah. There have been things that have developed and, and it hasn't happened overnight. And so it takes a while to unravel those situations. Now, one of the benefits I would imagine is the fact that you have served in pastoral ministry for several decades. You're not coming uh, from outside. You are someone who has been in that situation. You've experienced the pressure of serving a large congregation, trying to minister to your family and provide for your own spiritual welfare. So you are a pastor serving and ministering to pastors. Right. You know, my, my statement is <laughs> today is, is that I'm no longer a pastor in charge, but pastor at large. And uh, somebody asked me, they said, so Clark, what do you miss about the local <laughs> local church? And I said, as far as a local pastor, I said, well, a copy machine, having an assistant, you know, those things you just kind of take for granted day in and day out. And so uh, as we think about uh, my experience, 40 years, 40 years of experience, I've served in smaller churches, I've served uh, in larger churches up to 3,500, and, uh, and each one uh, has been, been different. And so what I want, want to do is just to take my years of experience, and, and uh, Georgine, I hope this doesn't come across as just an ego statement because I don't mean it this way, but uh, when I was thinking about becoming a part of Pastor Server when I initially met uh, Jimmy Dodd, uh, the founder, uh, I had listed like about 17 different things I thought I could be involved in, and, and at that time I really didn't even know about Pastor Serve. And then somebody said to me, hey, I'd like you to connect you with uh, Jimmy Dodd. And so we met in Kansas City over coffee, and he began explaining uh, Pastor Serve. And uh, it was just a very natural thing for me to say, you know what, all these other things I've been a part or I could have been a part of, fundraising, whatever it might have been, I've done all those things. But to be able to look at Pastor Serve and say, hey, I want to take my years of experience, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and be able to help somebody uh, because, uh, you know, many times it's just a matter of having that conversation. And uh, you can turn somebody's life around. Yeah. And so, anyway, that's uh, kind of where I'm coming from uh, as I think about my involvement and uh, not just independent churches, denominational churches. Uh, we're across the board. The main thing is that Christ is at the center uh, of that relationship for the people that we work with. Well, I would encourage you, if you'd like to learn more about Pastor Serve, you can go to their website, pastorserve.net. But if you're interested in talking with uh, someone, if you're interested in talking with uh, Clark Tanner, about uh, your specific need for help, uh, you can call the hotline 877-918-4746. That's 877-918-4746, and they will connect you. Or if you know someone across the country, they can connect you with someone in that specific region. But it's a great opportunity to speak with someone who has been there, who knows uh, the rigors of serving in a a pastoral role and can come alongside and help you or your congregation uh, to thrive. And it's, it's exciting to me to see someone of your caliber. And I, I can say whatever I want because, (laughs) because it's not about me. Um, Someone of your caliber who is willing to lend support to others who are in the trenches at this moment 
uh, serving at a very difficult time um, and to uh, share what you have learned along the way. That's a very valuable resource, and I am grateful that you're willing to um, to serve in that way. Yeah, and you know, it's it's the idea of, of uh, strengthening the church uh, by serving pastors, uh, and and we're not out, uh, you know, we're not out handing out clothing or food or something like that. We are strictly working with pastors is what we're doing. So that makes us kind of unique in a very special way. Uh, is that we just believe that as the the pastor is strengthened, this pastor is encouraged, then he'll be able to better minister to his flock. And so that's our objective, is just to work with that pastor and work with his family. Mm, excellent, excellent. Now, I think you brought something in with you? Yeah, I did. Um, uh, we have a couple books uh, that are in our series. Uh, the one I have with me today uh, is uh, authored by uh, Jimmy Dodd, our founder, uh, and it's called Survive or Thrive. And uh, in fact, uh, Georgina, I'd like to be able just to give this one away uh, to somebody out there that's listening today that would uh, uh, would love to be able to acquire a book like this. And hopefully uh, that there's something in here that just uh, the Lord would use to be able to speak to their heart. And one of the things that we talk about uh, specifically in the Survivor Thrive is the uh, the difference between the front stage and the backstage. And Jimmy does a great job of uh, developing this. But many times, on um, as we think about a person's life, uh, we think that uh, there is that backstage and front stage, and we just need to spend time in helping him to develop the backstage where sometimes yeah. there's a lot of difficulties. Okay, we've got the book. I want to give it away to uh, you. Just call and say, this is something I could benefit by. Call us at 800-845-2162. Clark, if you would just take their name and number, I'll follow up um, with that. Again, 800-845-2162, specifically for uh, a pastor or congregation that will benefit uh, by this book. Clark Tanner, a real pleasure to have you back and to have you back in studio. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Glad to have you with us. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk with Larry Gadbaugh. He's the CEO of the Pregnancy Resource Centers in the Portland area. First Image, we're going to talk about their gala that's coming up on Saturday evening. We'll also talk about a campaign to discredit Uh, pregnancy resource centers here in our community and all across the country. He'll be joining us in uh, about a half an hour. So I hope you can stick around for that. Well, you might recall last week, the president made mention of an effort to address the opioid crisis in this country. And I uh, saw in CNS news that they reported just some perspective on where we stand with regard to this. Uh, And then a follow up on how in uh, two of the states that have been ravaged by opioids, the difference faith has made Uh, is uh, certainly something to be considered. Well, we're learning that drug poisoning deaths are the leading cause of injury death in the United States. The leading cause of injury, killing 52,404 people in 2015, 140 people a day. That's according to the Drug Enforcement Administration in a report released yesterday. Drug overdoses are currently at their highest ever recorded level, and every year since 2011 have outnumbered deaths by firearms, motor vehicle crashes, suicide, or homicide. Drug overdoses. Uh, DEA says that 52,404 drug overdose deaths accounted by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in 2015 exceeded the 44,193 suicides in that year. 37,757 motor vehicle crashes, 
36,252 firearm deaths and 17,793 homicides. This is a major issue. According to Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, preliminary data indicates that around 60,000 people died of drug overdoses in the United States in 2016. Now, those numbers are not final as of yet. As you probably have guessed by now, we're always a couple of years behind, but that is uh, the preliminary data, 60,000 people. And while the nation's opioid epidemic has received most of the attention lately, that's only part of the story. According to the 2017 National Drug Threat Assessment, the methamphetamine threat has remained prevalent. The cocaine threat appears to be rebounding. New psycho- uh, psychoactive substances uh, continue to be a challenge, and the focus of marijuana enforcement efforts continue to evolve. That's a quote from the National Drug Threat Assessment. The Drug Enforcement Administration Using the CDC data said opioids, prescription opioids, heroin and fentanyl represent 63 percent of approximately the 52,404 drug overdoses in 2015. That works out to 91 uh, opioid overdose uh, deaths a day. And while recent data suggests abuse of prescription drugs has lessened in some years, the number of individuals reporting current use of controlled prescription drugs is still more than those reporting use of cocaine heroin, methamphetamine, MDMA, and um, phenocyclinide, or something like that, uh, combined. The total economic burden of prescription drug abuse was estimated at somewhere around $78.5 billion. That's clear back in 2013. This includes increased health care, substance abuse treatment costs, as well as criminal justice costs. Uh, The cost of prescription opioid abuse represents a substantial and growing economic burden for the society. The report went on to say the increasing prevalence of abuse suggests an even greater societal burden in the future. And, of course, those findings are are uh, serious. They're important. But the cost in terms of human life and the souls of those who um, who lose uh, not just their their life, but um, their vitality, their capacity through the drug overdose is another subject altogether. Well, I was encouraged uh, when Fred Lucas wrote, he writes for the Daily Signal, uh, about Hanover, New Hampshire. There's a strong correlation there between lack of religious attendance and illicit drug use. This is according to research, uh, showing a contrast in two states hit hard by the opioid crisis. And I bring it up because this may give us some indication of a role that the church might play Um, nationwide, if not just in our own communities. The parallels are demonstrated by two comparative studies of New Hampshire and West Virginia. West Virginia suffers from an ailing economy, while New Hampshire has a strong economy. Uh, That's uh, according to J. Scott Moody, CEO of the Granite Institute, a conservative think tank. The Institute takes uh, takes its name from the fact that New Hampshire is known as the Granite State. It's not just economics causing the overdose problems, he says. There are other factors. Moody and Wendy Warclick, uh, co-directors of the American Conservative Union's Family Prosperity Index, issued the West Virginia report in September and the 2017 Family Prosperity Index report in February. That report reveals a regional problem. They write, a large and growing body of evidence shows that not only can religion help prevent people from using illicit drugs, but it also plays a strong role in effective treatment programs. The northeastern states dominate the upper left quadrant of the chart, which they show in their report, where low religious uh, religiosity is correlated with high drug use, while deep southern states and Utah dominate the lower right quadrant, where high religiosity is correlated with low drug use. Now, we don't see the chart 
And of course, the word religiosity is, uh, causes many to bristle. But I think the uh, the uh, the lesson is somewhat clear. Moody noted that New Hampshire has a serious problem not only with opioid addiction, but also a related problem with high suicide rate. One in 10 young adults say that they have had uh, suicidal thoughts. You have to ask, why is that? Our economy is booming. We're pretty much at full employment. Anybody who wants a job can find one, Moody says. So we looked at more social type issues. For example, New Hampshire is one of the least religious states in the country. It's New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine. It's the race to the bottom. We suggest there is a strong correlation between illicit drug use and religious attendance. Now, one would assume that religious attendance represents something deeper than just presence, but... Uh, Quoting from the story, they go on to say, by contrast, data seems to be showing some improvement in West Virginia. Ironically, West Virginia is much more religious than northern New England, and that has actually suppressed their illicit drug use, which was a positive for West Virginia, but they still have a suicide problem along with it. Well, the Family Prosperity Index found that between 2000 and 2015, New Hampshire's drug overdose rate increased by 724 percent. Um, Over the same time period, the national average grew 148 percent. West Virginia's illicit drug use rate as a percentage of the population exceeded the national average in most years. However, the state has seen some reversals. Well, the study is suggesting that uh, when the church is uh, attractive and people are attending, when there is some um, some relationship, uh, which is a word we prefer to religiosity, it makes a difference in the use and abuse of prescription and other drugs. And the churches there apparently are making an impact um, in this uh, this crisis. A 2005 study, they go on to, uh, to quote, Faith Matters, Wraith, Race, Ethnicity, Religion, and Substance Abuse from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, a research center focused on education and opportunities for young people, found that religion is an important protective factor against substance abuse and an important support for persons in recovery. Religious people are less likely than others to use drugs, less likely to experience negative drug-related consequences. The office of Senator Mike Lee, a Republican out of Utah in the U.S. Senate, is also conducting the Social Capital Project which is a multi-year research effort looking at uh, associational life, which includes families, communities, workplaces, religious congregations. The report doesn't single out religion as a mitigating factor to addiction, but notes that isolation is a major cause. Studies show that, uh, that social networks influence the behavior of their members, affecting whether they are obese or fit, happy or sad, Lee's project says. The stark fact is that socially isolated people and others without social support die younger. Even among people with adequate social support, health status is connected to the health of their friends, family, and co-workers. Again, I mention it because it perhaps gives us a glimpse into some area that we might be effectively impacting the culture and serving our community that is in such desperate need. 16 minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. And when we do return later this hour, Larry Gadbaugh, CEO of First Image. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, just another glimpse at the culture as it uh, is evolving. A Catholic student group at Georgetown University could be stripped of its funding for its belief in traditional marriage. Love Saxa, a group that um, advocates for marriage between a man and a woman, is under fire from the LGBTQ groups on campus, Pride and Queer People of Color, according to 
Uh, The Hoya, which is Georgetown student publication, a pro-choice student senator filed a notice in September arguing that Love Sachs' definition of marriage and relationships violates university standards by fostering hatred or intolerance. So any honest disagreement is now leveled as hatred and intolerance. And it is combated by, well, intolerance. Well, the notice, which would identify Love Saxa, that's the name of the group, as a hate group, could strip the group of its funding and bar it from using campus facilities. The group receives $250 a year from the from Georgetown, which is the country's oldest Catholic university. Love Saxa petitioned for a, uh, a delay because it... Uh, it was not given enough time to defend itself and had not seen the notice, according to the Catholic News Agency. A hearing originally set for Monday is now scheduled for the 30th. That's what Monday next. The controversy began last month when the president of Love Saxa published an op-ed titled Confessions of a College Virgin in the Hoya, which is the paper, talking about abstinence between uh, rather before marriage and the group's definition of marriage. Love Sachs's definition of marriage does not include same sex couples, as we believe that marriage is a conjugal union on every level, emotional, spiritual, physical and mental directed toward caring for biological children. To us, marriage is much more than a commitment of love between two consenting adults. Well, the student newspaper then targeted Love Saxa in an editorial titled Defund Intolerance. By imposing intolerance. Well, Love Saxa doesn't deserve the benefit of university recognition and should be ineligible for any university benefits, the paper wrote, claiming the group's mission advocates against equal rights for the LGBTQ community and fosters intolerance. Love Saxa put out a statement condemning the Hoya's actions as intolerant of the values and beliefs of Georgetown. Uh, and the back and forth continues. And again, the definition of a, an honest disagreement A differing view on a college university campus is no longer sharing views and uh, making the case for your views as opposed to someone else's. You simply silence one in favor of the other. Meanwhile, Kayum Ahmed is an adjunct faculty member at Columbia's law school. They help students prevent a controversial right-wing speaker from giving a talk on campus. He also preemptively filed a discrimination complaint because the speech in question constitutes an act of violence and is a form of harassment and discrimination. Now, he would describe himself as being left-wing and a point of view that differs dramatically from his own right-wing he says, as a, an adjunct law professor, constitutes an act of violence, is a form of harassment and discrimination. Well, he claimed in the Columbia Daily Spectator that he is under investigation for his role in disrupting the college Republicans event on the 10th of October, which involved a presentation by Robbie Rob, or rather Tommy Robinson. Uh, Robinson is a European anti-Islamist activist who is legally barred from entering the U.S., which is why he was scheduled to speak via Skype. So he wasn't actually going to be present. The speech didn't happen. Protesters shouted him down, making it impossible for the audience to hear him, according to campus reforms. Um, Tony Erkesnen, uh, Ahmed, the uh, adjunct professor, has defended his actions on the grounds that allowing someone like Robinson to speak is dangerous and that hate speech does not deserve robust First Amendment protection. So the First Amendment is being increasingly restricted to anything that I disagree with or makes me uncomfortable. 
which is precisely why we have a First Amendment. As one of the protesters who stood with a placard in the front of the room where Robinson's image was projected onto a screen, I was not only exercising my right to free speech, I was defending my right to exist and to be recognized as human, he went on to say. Prior to the talk, I filed a formal complaint of discrimination and harassment with Columbia University's Office of Equal Opportunity and Affirmative Action. Well, I'm not sure who the complaint is directed against, the college Republicans, the university. Ahmed did didn't immediately respond to the request for clarification as a professor. Robinson is indeed uh, a, a hateful and loathsome person, says the reviewer of the event. If I were a member of the college Republicans, I would have implored my friends not to give him a platform. I support students and professors who protested both the decision to invite Robinson and Robinson himself. But words are not violence, and the hatefulness of Robinson's perspective is not grounds for canceling his speech or shouting him down. His arguments are paternalistic. He doesn't trust students to choose the most well-reasoned argument when presented with a hateful perspective, and so he wants to strip them of their right to listen. This is illiberal thinking and a betrayal of the values for which Columbia stands and a concerning position for a member of the law faculty to take. Another example of a redefinition of uh, what First Amendment freedom of speech is. And then there's this. There's no longer uh, with us. Uh, but I can still remember them marching every 4th of July parade when I was a kid, so writes Tony Perkins. Sadly, all that remains of our World War I veterans are some fading memories and the historical memorials to their dedication. And if atheists have their way, the memorials will soon be faded from history altogether. Last week, the American Humanist Association got one step closer to that goal, thanks to a three-judge panel of the 4th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. After duking it out in the courts for half a decade, the battle over a 92-year-old cross in Bladensburg, Maryland, took another twist when two uh, liberal activists chucked the First Amendment in favor of their own anti-faith bias. Again, quoting Tony Perkins. In a 33-page opinion, the majority insists that the 40-foot monument aggrandizes the Latin cross, the core symbol of Christianity. But amazingly, it's not the symbol that bothers them, but its size. Here it is uh, 40 foot tall, 40 feet tall, rather, prominently displayed in the center of one of the busiest intersections in Prince George's County, Maryland, and maintained with thousands of dollars in government funds. Well, Chief Judge Roger Gregory could only shake his head in amazement, wondering in his dissent what they had done. What that had to do with anything. In the majority's view, the memorial is unconstitutional, based predominantly on the size of the cross, and neither its secular features nor history could overcome that presumption. But such a conclusion is contrary to our constitutional directive, which seems to matter little these days. Built in 1925, the cross was meant to honor 49 Prince George's County residents who died in World War I. Uh, words like valor, endurance, courage, and devotion are chiseled onto the monument's uh, base as a reminder of the sacrifice it takes to defend freedom, the same freedom, ironically, this court is denying. Like a lot of veterans, our friends at First Liberty Institute, who are representing the American Legion, are concerned about what the ruling means for other displays, like the rows of crosses marking soldiers' graves at Arlington Cemetery. As usual, the court's reasoning is completely selective and subjective. Asked how they could justify this response when Arlington is also federally funded, the judges fumbled around for an answer. The crosses there, the majority tried to explain, are much smaller than the 40-foot-tall monolith at issue here. And significantly, Arlington National Cemetery displays diverse religious symbols, both as monuments and on individual headstones. 
Apparently, the judges like their laws like they like their buffets a la carte. First Liberty attorney Jeremy Dice is a... uh, as frustrated as the rest of us that the American Humanist Association is too busy being offended to consider our service members' wishes. I think it's very discouraging, Dice says, that for the thousands of veterans across the country who have basically been told their war memorials are suspect if any religious imagery appears near them. I think it's important that we honor veterans the way that veterans choose to honor themselves. After all, these memorials are a lot more than pieces of granite. They are America's way of telling an important story. It's the same principle in the Old Testament when leaders would build piles of stones to remind future generations about God's faithfulness. Like Blandensburg, when the memories had faded, they wanted their children and grandchildren to see those monuments and ask what they meant. Now, atheists are working overtime to rewrite that history and sandblast the role of faith in America. They're already chipping away at the substance, taking prayer and Bible out of schools and other places. Now they want the symbols Two. Well, as George Orwell warned in 1984, he who controls the present controls the past. He who controls the past controls the future. Well, this ruling is exactly the kind of precedent Christians have to stop. Kelly Shackelford's First Liberty Institute is certainly trying, if that means uh, taking this, um, this fight all the way to the Supreme Court. They are ready to do just that. Again, the monument um, likely to be removed. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with Larry Gadbaugh. He is the chief executive officer of First Image. But more than that, he's also a father. He and his wife have five children, and he has a father's heart. Uh, More importantly, he has the father's heart uh, as the guiding principle for this ministry that reaches out to girls, to women, Uh, who have unplanned and unexpected pregnancies. And the pregnancy resource centers that spot the Portland metro area have been serving uh, with distinction for many, many years. Well, their gala is coming up this Saturday, and there's still a few places available. We'll tell you how you can attend. If you'd like to learn more and be inspired and encouraged, that's coming up next. Larry Gadbaugh. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, this Saturday is a very special gala, and I wanted to make sure that you know about it. In fact, I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't do this earlier because we're talking about this Saturday, after all. But I invited Larry Gadbaugh, who's one of my favorite people on the planet, to join us to talk about the uh, upcoming gala for First Image, the Portland Area Pregnancy Resource Centers, and also to talk about the NARAL campaign that's going on this week nationally against pregnancy resource centers, including... Portland's area pregnancy resource centers. Well, Larry Gadbaugh has served as First Images CEO since March of 2001. After ministering for over 15 years as a pastor at Grace Community Church in Gresham, he is a graduate of Multnomah College and uh, received his MA from Western Seminary. He and his wife have five children, so he really is a father with a father's heart, serving as the chief executive officer at First Image. Larry Gadbaugh, thank you so much for joining us. It's always great to be with you, Georgine. Well, as I admitted a moment ago, I'm a little embarrassed I didn't have you on for this conversation earlier, but I wanted to make sure our listeners know about First Images uh, Gala that's coming up this Saturday. And my understanding is, because I got an email earlier today, uh, that it's still possible to register to attend that event. That's right. We uh, we have some wonderful, uh, generous table sponsors who have some open seats. So, in fact, if someone isn't able to... Uh, afford to come. We have some uh, free seats available to come for dinner. 
to come for the reception and to enjoy the gala and learn more about First Image. So uh, if they'd like to come, all they need to do is email me. Send me an email, Larry at first-image.org. And uh, just send me an email, say that you want to come, and we'll get you hooked up and uh, give you the information if you're interested in coming. All right. That's Larry at first-image.org. Correct. All right. All right. Well, that's really good to know because it's a wonderful opportunity to come together with like-minded people and to just see in one sitting what God is doing in our community. And I think... Uh, anyone who uh, attends one of these events comes away encouraged and inspired and confident that God is at work, even in ways and in areas that we may not be aware of. Absolutely. And you're really going to be inspired this time because our special speaker is someone you might know. Uh, it's Georgine Rice. <laughs> we are mm. very excited uh, that Georgine has agreed to come and be our speaker at the gala uh, it, you know, we always say she's like an unpaid employee here. Where <laughs> she, she knows us so well. She tells the story so well. And Georgine, your heart for people, your heart for our community, your heart for the kingdom of God, and your heart for the women uh, who face unplanned pregnancies and, and those who have suffered from abortion and, and the youth of our city is displayed in so many ways. And it's so it's so in keeping, you know, with the mission of, of uh, First Image and Pregnancy Resource Centers. Uh, we are excited to be able to serve with you uh, this Saturday. Well, I appreciate that, Larry. And the reason I'm excited is because the focus is going to be on what God is doing through his people. And that, to me, is yeah. always exciting um, because um, God is good and he's moving in our community and using his people here, you and others. And uh, so it, it's going to be a great evening. I thought it was rather interesting. It was just brought to my attention earlier today that there is a campaign going on. And this, I think, is is so telling of the challenge that uh, pregnancy resource centers face here and all across the country. There's a campaign, I think it's in its second week, that is designed for the sole purpose of smearing and undermining the reputation of pregnancy resource centers across the nation, including and specifically named the pregnancy resource centers here in the Portland area. Yes. It's, it's their latest attempt to do that. At first, they called it a hackathon, where they are encouraging people who, uh, who don't like what pregnancy resource centers are doing to go on uh, Google and give us Google reviews that are negative to scare people away from coming to pregnancy resource centers. Part of the reason they're doing this and have been, at least in Oregon, this kind of thing since 2007 is because uh, they, they have seen that when women see their babies on the ultrasound and, and they're considering an abortion, when they see their babies on the ultrasound in, the, in our, Portland, uh, our Portland Pregnancy Resource Centers, a nine out of ten change their mind and choose to, to birth their baby and consider adoption or to parent. And, and it's so effective when women, uh, when women see their babies, they arise to, to want to be life givers to these children. And uh, for some reason, they think that's a problem. Yeah, for, for a movement that purports to have choice as its, its core value, it really is uh, rather surprising. Although if you know the organization and its history, it's not surprising at all. I think it's also entirely appropriate that they are referring to it themselves as a smear campaign, because that is precisely what it's intended to do, create false scenarios 
undermining the reputation and the good work of the pregnancy resource centers that don't receive any public money for the work that they do. It's an expression of the neighbors uh, of the women who come, the teenage girls, the women who come for help. Uh, and, and again, it just I think it's very telling and it says more about them than it does about the pregnancy resource centers. So it's in that context uh, that we're going to be celebrating the successes that we've seen through the work of the Holy Spirit in our community at the hands of God's people who have simply faithfully extended the love of Christ uh, in a way that is changing the course of women and their children's lives uh, for eternity. And I am excited uh, about that. Well, and, and it's such a privilege to serve together because those who serve in our centers, most of them are volunteers, of course, and it's because, you know, Christ has loved us, and yes. so we extend this love to our neighbors who find themselves in, you know, for all kinds of different, you know, complicated situations, find themselves facing decisions that they feel is a no-win situation, and, and we give them the hope. The, you know, the hope that there are resources, there are people, there's compassion, uh, there's there's people who will walk with them through uh, these decisions and and, uh, and through the process of pregnancy so that they don't have to do that alone and that they have hope for a future. Absolutely. Well, it's a, a real honor uh, for me to have the opportunity to highlight you and the volunteers and the staff of the uh, Pregnancy Resource Center. I have no illusions about the difference between talking about it and actually doing the work, and that's what you and others are doing. And I so appreciate your faithfulness uh, to work with very little and to do so much that's impacting uh, this community. So once again, I want to encourage our listeners, if you'd like to find out more, if you'd like to support and encourage those who are uh, doing the work of the Pregnancy Resource Centers here in the Portland metro area, there is still an opportunity for you to attend the gala uh, this Saturday. And again, you can let Larry know at Larry. Okay, Larry, first dash image dot org. How'd I do? Yeah. Very good. You just, left, you just left out the at. Well, <laughs> so Larry there at is that. First, that's right. Minor detail. <laughs> I don't know where that'll go. But, uh, so it's Larry, Larry at first-image.org. Okay, okay. And again, that's uh, this Saturday. Let me get all the details. And it's going to be held at the Melody Ballroom. And you can get all those details from... uh, from Larry when you when you send him that email. Well, once again, yeah. I just want to say thank you for your faithful service in our community. I know that uh, what you and others, uh, the staff and volunteer, are doing is a real reflection of the heartbeat of God. And despite opposition that um, can be daunting at times, you continue to serve faithfully. And uh, we're looking forward to celebrating this Saturday night. It'll be fun. Thank you, George. It will be. Larry Gadbaugh, thank you so much. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye. Again, uh, Larry Gadbaugh is the chief executive officer at First Image. I, he has such a father's heart. As I mentioned earlier, he has five children. He and his wife have five children of their own. And his leadership is a reflection of that father's heart. He has experienced the love of Christ and extends it so well to others who come through the center's. And uh, just wanted to let you know that there is an opportunity for those of you who perhaps have supported the ministry in the past. Maybe you don't know much about it. You've never attended one of the events. This is a great opportunity for you to get that first glimpse. And of course, this is an opportunity to support them. Maybe for you, that means uh, you're going to volunteer your time. It might mean giving financially. You'll have an opportunity to find out where the needs are and where you might plug in. And again, you can um, you can email Larry at, get this right, Larry at first-image.org. 
Yes, I think I nailed it. Larry at first-image.org. All right, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. We'll let you know what's coming up the remainder of the week. A couple of guests I'm especially looking forward to uh, talking with will tell you who they are. I also want to tell you a little bit more about this smear campaign that's going on and how you might help respond to it in a way that would be constructive. And isn't that always the goal, to be constructive and not just uh, have something to say? So anyway, we'll share that with you when we return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Before I move on to other things, I did want to mention one thing very quickly. We uh, spoke with Larry Gadbaugh in our previous segment about this effort to what they call expose fake clinics. That's the best they can do to try to put an end to the very effective work that pregnancy resource centers are doing here in the Portland metro area and all across the country. It's an explicit campaign by a number of organizations, the names of which I won't (laughs) mention because some of them are just not very nice. Anyway, um, their their goal is, and these are the words that they use, is to smear the reputation of pregnancy resource centers all across the nation. They've compiled a large list of centers from around the country, including the pregnancy resource centers right here in the Portland area, uh, to target for smear campaigns. And what they're asking their people to do is to uh, give bad reviews. They've never been there. They don't know the people. They don't know what goes on there. They just write false stories about the pregnancy resource centers to create the impression um, that they're doing bad work. Their August campaign resulted in a few protests around the country at a small number of PRCs. But for the uh, centers in Portland, it produced some negative reviews on their Google business pages. Since many women who are facing unplanned pregnancies go online looking for help, this can hurt the organization uh, in search results. Um, so what they're uh, they're asking you to do is to expose these um, uh, fake uh, reviews, and perhaps Google can step in and uh, take action to remove them. Uh, the organization itself, the Pregnancy Resource Centers, don't have the ability to remove fake reviews, uh, but with enough people reporting them, it's uh, more likely that Google will take action to remove them. So that's something that you can do uh, to help in that uh, that effort to simply falsify the reputation of a, um, a stellar organization in our community and others like it across the country. All right. Uh, tomorrow on the program, I'm so looking forward to talking with Carol Kent, her latest book, He Holds My Hand. And when Carol Kent titles a book um, like that, uh, it really means something. As uh, I've mentioned before, and you might recall, her son, who was uh, just a straight-A, straight-up guy, uh, is serving a life sentence in prison for murdering the ex-husband of the woman he was going to marry uh, because he was, um, we were, he was told, uh, physically abusing his two daughters. And it's a story that she has told many times. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to her website and, and read more about the whole story. But learning to live with that, uh, that uh, consequence, that outcome, that circumstance has been a, a lifelong challenge for Carol and her husband. Her latest book is He Holds My Hand, uh, providing some just practical insight uh, into how to continue walking forward under the worst possible scenario one could imagine, having one son incarcerated for the remainder of his life, especially someone who has had a stellar reputation and background, a future that was bright, 
Um, uh, anyway, we're going to talk with her about her latest book, which is, by the way, published by Tyndale. On Thursday, we'll talk with Matt Stanford. His book is Grace for the Afflicted, a Clinical and Biblical Perspective on Mental Illness. And uh, we so desperately need a biblical understanding on uh, mental illness and how the body of Christ, how those of us who are individual followers of Christ uh, ought to um, view the subject and how we ought to respond in a way that is Christ honoring. So we're looking forward to that on Thursday. And then assuming, um, you know, no major news story uh, occurs on Friday, which, by the way, we would cover if that were the case. We'll lighten up on Friday and um, uh, step away from some of the more serious news that uh, is developing sort of like a storm all around us pretty much all the time. Well, a popular conservative video channel, PragerU, and if you've never found it, it's a great job of covering some of the more thorny issues of our day, explaining them in a way that uh, the, the average Joe can understand them. They filed a lawsuit against Google and YouTube over alleged censorship and discrimination. Now, this is one of many cases. In fact, I... Uh, discussed a couple of them earlier in the program. Filed Monday in U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, the suit accuses Google and YouTube of ideologically driven discrimination. And we're seeing more and more of that, where the ideology of the content uh, is, uh, is sought for censorship because they disagree. It's not offensive in terms of it being over uh, a perceived line of appropriateness. It's a matter of the perspective that's being uh, expressed. PragerU brings this lawsuit to stop Google YouTube from unlawfully centering its educational videos and discriminating against its right to freedom of speech solely because of PragerU's political identity and viewpoint as a nonprofit um, organization uh, that espouses conservative views on current and historical events, the lawsuit states. Google, YouTube have been discriminating and censoring and continue to discriminate and censor educational videos uploaded or posted to our YouTube platform through the arbitrary and capricious use of restricted mode and um, uh, demonized. They said this differently than I would have. Demonetization. Uh, viewer restriction filters that purposely uh, are intended to prohibit or limit access to inappropriate content to prospective public viewers based on certain viewer characteristics, including the age of the viewer. The suit charges that Google and YouTube use their restricted mode filtering as a political gag mechanism to silence PragerU. Now, Google YouTube's purported use of vague overboard and subjective criteria, including YouTube's terms of use and community guidelines, to justify their censorship decisions constitute um, a facially invalid Restrictions on speech that lack objective criteria are misleading and or are discriminatory, the suit continued. And while Google, YouTube may lawfully regulate or restrain speech in certain circumstances to the extent that such restrictions constitute reasonable and objective time, manner, place restrictions that comport with federal and California legal standards for the regulation of speech, it may not do so at will without any restrictions or in any arbitrary or capricious manner that provides them with unbridled discretion to discriminate against a speaker based on her or his identity. PragerU is a Los Angeles-based group that has over one million subscribers on YouTube. It's found many its uh, uh, videos uh, restricted or blocked due to complaints over its content. People are uh, are offended by the content. Uh, the, the, for example, last December, a PragerU video featuring a pro-Israeli British Muslim was labeled hate speech and blocked by the video sharing site for anyone using restricted access standards. So a Muslim who is pro-Israel and happens to be British hate speech. 
uh, and they are in favor of Israel, not uh, opposing Israel, which, of course, would not have been restricted. There's no excuse for for Google and YouTube censoring and restricting any PragerU videos, which are produced with a sole intent of educating people of all ages about America's founding values, the statement from PragerU said at the time. In the post, YouTube has explained to critics that their restricted mode option was an optional feature used by a small subset of users to filter videos that include sensitive content. Uh, It's based on algorithms that look at a number of factors, including community flagging on videos, YouTube, as quoted by Fortune in 2016. As with many of our products, our goal is to improve it over time based on community feedback, and we encourage users to flag videos they feel should be included on restricted mode. Now, it apparently doesn't matter if they're feeling, in quotes, uh, is a sufficient ground to restrict these videos, but if they feel they should be included on the restricted mode, Google and YouTube apparently are all too willing to restrict it, particularly if the content is uh, conservative. Anyway, we'll follow that lawsuit and uh, let you know what happens as it moves or makes its way through the courts. Now, of course, there's the issue of standing, which we've seen brought up on many occasions, so we'll find out what happens with the suit, uh, at least initially, and then uh, assuming it moves forward, we will report on that. Well, once again, I want to remind you that tomorrow's guest will be Carol Kent. Her latest book, He Holds My Hand, book is published by Tyndale. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.